One of the very 90s Disney movies that I still absolutely love is The Mighty Ducks. Who has seen The Mighty Ducks? Who loves that movie? All right, good, a few of you, a few of you. So uh, in The Mighty Ducks movie, Coach Gordon Bombay, he recruits this kid named Adam Banks. And Adam Banks used to be the star player for the Hawks. They're the arch rivals of the Ducks. He's the star player for them. Uh, He's the one that always scored the goals, and so the Ducks naturally hate Adam Banks in particular. I mean, they hate all the Hawks players, but Adam Banks they hate the most. And, of course, it works out that it, it ends up that he starts to play for the Ducks. So the coach, Coach Bombay, recruits him to the Ducks over a zoning issue, and he becomes a player for the Ducks, and uh, it was met with total shock and total opposition by all the Ducks players. Nobody was happy about that. They could not believe that Coach Bombay actually would recruit, of all people, Adam Banks to come and play for the Ducks. I mean, they couldn't believe it. What is he thinking? Why is he doing this? Well, that's kind of how I think the disciples would have reacted to this next encounter and the next person that Jesus called and chose to join them along with him. Matthew chapter 9, look at that with me. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 is where we're going to be as we continue on in our series, Christ Encounters, and we look at this next one-on-one, very personal encounter. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. Um, it starts off with something that is a bit of a leaving you hanging type feeling if you don't understand what happened before. So uh, what took place in the verses previous to verse 9 is that Jesus, uh, as he often did, he generated scandal and did something and said something that was just striking. He healed the paralytic, and he didn't just heal him physically. He said, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees and all the religious leaders could not believe what he said. They called him on it. They understood what he was really saying. He was saying that he is God. And they got that because they said, we're going, to have to, we're going to have to deal with this guy. We're going to have to do something because he just committed blasphemy. He, being a man, claimed to be able to forgive sin, which only God can do. And Jesus said, yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You, you get it. So that took place. And he went on from that location and that healing and that scandalous statement. That's where verse 9 picks up. The Word of God says this, As Jesus went on from there, all that that had just happened, like I, I said, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, at first glance, that seems pretty straightforward, pretty simple, not that dramatic. But we need to understand, there is a lot wrapped up in the fact that he was sitting at the tax office. Matthew was a tax collector. And that was something that most people in that time didn't think about wanting to become. Most little Jewish boys didn't dream of becoming a tax collector. Uh, The tax collector in the tax office, that's not like the toll booth workers that we're used to passing on the interstate or like the IRS. Uh, You may have strong feelings about the IRS. 
Uh, but it's, it's nothing like the tax collectors of the day, okay? Um, the tax collectors of this time period, they were collaborators with the Roman Empire, the Roman occupation. They collected all the taxes from their fellow citizens that went to Rome. And if that wasn't enough, they were able to gouge the prices. They were able to say, okay, Rome expects and demands this much. That's the bottom line that Rome needs. But I'm going to set the tax rate higher, really as high as I might want, so that I can get the difference. So whatever the difference was, they took as personal profit. And Rome was fine with that. As long as Rome got theirs, they didn't care what the tax collectors did. Go ahead, rack it up 20%, 30%, 50%. Didn't matter. So the tax collectors were all very, very wealthy people, and they were wealthy at the expense of their fellow Jewish citizens. So they were doubly despised. I mean, they worked for Rome and helped Rome monopolize on the Jewish people, and then they monopolized on the Jewish people. And then they also had a big collection of Roman guards all around them, so if anybody didn't pay their taxes or threatened the tax collector, then they had to answer to Rome. So, I mean, they were just, they were despised. You really couldn't get any lower in the common Jewish mind than a tax collector. It was the, the lowest of all occupations. They were despised. They were viewed as traitors. They weren't ever allowed in the Sanhedrin. They weren't allowed to come into the synagogue. Their, their, their testimony would never be accepted in the courts. I mean, they were the lowest of the low, even lower than Rome themselves uh, in a lot of people's thinking. So imagine, imagine the disciples... As they go by the tax booth, the tax office, and Jesus stops and looks right at the tax collector, boo, looks right at him, and instead of criticizing and judging him, which would have made the disciples very happy, he says, follow me. And I, I, just, I just see Peter, I mean of all the people, I see Peter saying, uh, Rabbi, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And so, I mean, that's the moment. Shock, surprise, disappointment, alarm. All of that would have been happening when he looks at Matthew and he says, follow me. And even worse, when Matthew actually does it, when he gets up. I mean, maybe Peter's thinking to himself or praying a little bit, oh, please don't let him get up, please don't let him get up. But he gets up and he follows him. And even though Peter and others probably weren't glad for this, I, I am just so glad that Jesus doesn't just call one specific type of person. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, think about who he's called up to this point. Peter and Andrew, fishermen, one of which was a loudmouth fisherman, Peter. Uh, he's, he's called an intellectual, a religious expert, probably, most likely, in Nathaniel. We don't know exactly what he was, but a lot of clues, like we looked at last week, that he was definitely one who knew his stuff and was very devoted and a student of the law. He calls him. Don't know much about Philip, but he certainly seems to be sincere and 
willing to go and bring others, kind of like Andrew did. And now he calls Matthew, of all people, a tax collector, calls Matthew. I'm just so glad that we see that Jesus calls a variety of people to himself and to his work, because that's very good news for us. I mean, we're not, we're not really all that similar when it comes down to it. If you look at a, at a cross-section of all of us, we're all different people. We come from different backgrounds, we have different preferences and different opinions, and naturally speaking, by rights, we probably don't have a whole lot that would naturally draw us together. But Jesus and the gospel of Jesus brings us all together into that one great calling. What a privilege. What an amazing thing that that is. And we see that here. And here's, here's the other really, really important thing that I want you to notice uh, right, right here at the beginning in this very small account, really. I mean, we don't see a lot going on and a lot explained, but there really is a lot to it here in just verse 9. And the one thing I really want you to zero in on as you see this call that Jesus gave to Matthew, follow me, and as you see him getting up and doing that, it's this. The call to follow Jesus is always a call to repent. The call to follow Jesus is always a call to repent. It's not a call to just pray a special prayer. It's not a call to have an emotional experience. It's not a call to just get some fire insurance so that you don't have to go to hell. Certainly, the call to follow Jesus can involve those things, but it's not just any one of those things. And we need to remember that. We live in an age of growing and increasing what you could call easy believism. And while it is easy to believe in the fact that Jesus is the only answer to all of our need and He is the only Savior, I mean, really, there's not much you know, to, to think about there when you really come down to it. it. It really is obvious once you get to it. But the call to follow Jesus and the call to act on the call that He extends, it involves much more than just a simple little prayer. Or, and it involves so much more than just a, a really high emotional experience. And it involves so much more than just not wanting to go to hell. A call to follow Jesus, a call to salvation, must, must, must include repentance. It's where it begins. It's where it ends. It's what it all is about. The call to follow Jesus is a call to repentance. And we really see that here in this account. It's not explicitly stated, but it is certainly implied and it's really undeniable to see. Think about what I just said about the tax collectors a few minutes ago. What were they? They weren't honest. They weren't caring they were self-focused, self-absorbed. They were greedy. They were all about the money. That's what drove them. That's what defined them. That's why they did what they did. So when Jesus looked at Matthew, 
and said, very simply, come after me, it meant that to come after him, he would have to leave his tax collector's table. To, to follow Jesus, he'd have to leave that life behind. He'd have to say no to self and no to all those selfish pursuits so that he could say yes to Jesus and all that Jesus was about. And notice what he did. By no apparent emotional response and just simply the call of Jesus, that sovereign powerful, spiritual call of God in Matthew's life, and which we know from so many other cases and accounts of Scripture, meant the Holy Spirit was already working in his life, drawing him to that point, preparing him for that call, and enabled him to get up and make that choice. He got up and he followed him, and by following him, he left Everything that had defined him up to this point, he left it behind. What we see here is repentance. And it's what needs to mark every response to the call of Jesus. Church, we've got to make sure that's a priority for us. We've got to make sure that's what we ourselves are defined by. And it's also what we need to make sure drives our entire gospel proclamation. Whenever we are speaking of the gospel, whenever we're talking about it, whenever we're preaching it, we need to make sure that what we emphasize is a repentance. And repentance is exactly what Matthew did. It's the stopping of the direction that you're, you're headed in, that you're currently going in. It's ceasing to live one way and living another. It's turning around and going the opposite direction of how you've been heading all along, of, of the direction you've been heading all along. You're going one way, you stop, you go the other. And more specifically than that, it's ceasing to go away from God and stopping and turning and going toward Him through Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. Saying no to self and yes to Him. No to sin, yes to righteousness. And it happens at the moment of salvation, but by no means does it stop there not a one-and-done thing. Ultimately, our repentance begins at salvation. That's where it takes place for the first time. And that's the most important part of repentance, turning to Christ for salvation. But once that happens, then repentance, it needs to be a way of life. It needs to be continual. It needs to be perpetual. Because what happens, even though we are saved, we constantly are turning our attention back to the thing we were called to leave to sin, and to self. So repentance is a continual act that begins with salvation. And it's what we see certainly on display here in Matthew, even if it's not explicitly said in the text. Certainly, Matthew would have thought of this one encounter, this original encounter that he had with Jesus as he penned the Gospel of Matthew and recorded what Jesus said in Matthew 6.24. Certainly it describes what happened here with Matthew and it had to have been on his mind. He had to have thought back to that day when he was sitting at the tax booth just doing his normal day's work, collecting the tax and getting more. He had to have thought back to that when he said this in Matthew 6.24, recording what Jesus said, No one... No one can serve two masters. 
since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that definitely applied to Matthew, right? Being a tax collector. And that's what we see Matthew deciding is true. That's why he got up and followed Jesus. Jesus didn't say to Matthew, hey, Matthew, follow me when it fits within your schedule. Matthew, follow me, but it's okay to keep doing the tax collector thing. No, it wasn't going to work. Because Matthew's life as a tax collector was all wrapped up in Matthew's life. And what Matthew could get for himself. It was wrapped up in greed and the love of money. And no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And so Jesus' call to follow Matthew was to leave all that behind. And Matthew got that. He understood that. That's why he, he just left it all. Like Peter and Andrew, left the nets. John and James, they left the nets. They left everything to follow Jesus because they realized you can't serve two masters. And we need to remember that as well. We need to realize that and keep recalling that to our minds because that is exactly what we're prone to do. We're prone to build up all these idols and then when we smash those, we go along a little ways and then we find new idols. We find all these other masters that we try to fit into our heart. We try to serve them all. What's your other master? What is it that you struggle with? You struggle with not being devoted to, not trying to be devoted to that and to the Lord Jesus. For Matthew, at the time, it was money. And that statement, you cannot serve both God and money, I mean, certainly money is a root of all kinds of evil. But it's not the only root. It's not the only source. There's a lot of other things you could fill in the blank with. So what is it for you? What is your that thing, that other thing that vies for attention, that sticks its claws into your heart, tries to get your devotion, tries to steal your devotion away from Jesus? We're all going to struggle with it. Unfortunately, we're all going to struggle with it until we're out of this body of sin. So we've got to keep remembering Keep realizing, yeah, that's right. I I can't serve two masters. It's got to be Jesus alone. That's what I'm called to, just like he called Matthew and others. Well, let's, let's keep going in this encounter because there's more that it shows us, more that it teaches us. So that was that was the personal one-on-one encounter with Matthew. And after he gets up and he follows Jesus, something else really significant happens as a result of that call and that following of that call. Verse 10, look with me at that. While he was reclining at the table in the house, and this this is Matthew's house. We know that from the other accounts in the Gospels of this same scenario, this same situation, this was actually Matthew's house. So it it doesn't say it, but after Matthew follows Jesus, after he leaves everything, He apparently invites Jesus to his house. Or Jesus, maybe like he does with Zacchaeus, he tells him, I'm going to come to your house. You need to get your house ready. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a gathering of of some people. So I don't know how that ends up happening, but he ends up at Matthew's house 
while he was reclining at the table in the house, look at this part, don't miss this, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Man, Peter must have been having a rough time. I mean, if one tax collector is bad, many tax collectors is really, really bad. And so, here he is in the house of Matthew, and now many tax collectors and, quote, sinners, they came, they join in, they come to eat with Jesus and His disciples. To the shock and surprise of of all, probably. And here again is just a really, really good thing that's implied here, even though it's not explicitly in the text. And that's this. Jesus... Here's what we see. We see this happening because of this. Because of all these people gathering around and the reason they came. Jesus will use a person no one else wants to reach people no one else is reaching. Isn't that great news? No one wanted tax collectors. They were unwanted. They were looked down on. They were despised. But here's the brilliance of Jesus. And I know, I know He's God. But here's the brilliance of Jesus. He intentionally, strategically, deliberately called Matthew tax collector. Why? So that through Him, He could draw and bring all these other tax collectors and outcasts and despised people to Himself. No one was going to the tax collectors to try to reach them for God. Nobody was doing that. We know that from for uh, what we'll see in a second, the reaction of the religious leaders to this gathering of all the tax collectors, this, this impromptu tax collectors convention that became a tax collector conversion party. They didn't react too fondly to it. We'll see that in just a second. And it proves that no one that should be reaching the tax collectors and, quote, sinners of society, no one was doing that. No one was reaching them. They were, they were off limits. They were the other side of the tracks. They were just totally overlooked. So here's Jesus stopping at this, this specific tax booth and looking at that specific tax collector saying, I've got something so much better for you. I see so much more for you than this. I want you to look past the dollar signs. I want you to look back how wealthy you've, you've made yourself from this work. And I'm calling you to something so much bigger, so much more important. And then shortly after that personal call that is responded to and that, that obvious repentance that takes place in Matthew's heart, what does he do? He uses him to bring others like him to himself. Jesus will use a person no one else wants to reach people no one else is reaching. Is that what he's calling you to do? Maybe. Perhaps. Maybe he's calling you uniquely, personally, to go and reach the others that others aren't wanting to reach or aren't willing to reach. Maybe that's exactly what He wants you to do. Look at the reaction. 
I've already alluded to this just a second ago, but here's, here's how it actually plays out. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat fellowship with, partner with, align himself with, that's what's wrapped up in the eat with, okay? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, so he didn't even give the disciples a chance to respond. When he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And this is very much in line with what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Matthew's recording that. He's, he's going back and gathering what Jesus said. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he collects so much that Jesus said and did like the other authors of the Gospels did. And, and I can't help but think again that as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this statement from the Sermon on the Mount that he, he maybe thought about that gathering in his house when Jesus said what he did to the Pharisees about it's not those who are well that need a doctor but the sick. And, and I, would have, I think he probably would have connected this statement from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount with that situation. Matthew 5.3, Jesus said there, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What did he mean by the poor in spirit? What, what he meant there was, blessed or, or happy, good, are those who recognize, who realize their own personal spiritual poverty before God. Blessed, happy, good, Satisfied, fulfilled are those who see their true state as it relates to God. Who see and recognize their need of God. That they themselves are poor. There's nothing they can do to help or save themselves. And that they need God to intervene. Blessed are those. That's what is meant by the poor in spirit. That's how the kingdom of heaven is achieved. By realizing you can't achieve it on your own. By yourself. Realizing you're poor in every way that matters, that you're needy, and that unless God intervenes, which He has done through Christ, you truly are hopeless. That's what it means. And that's really what Jesus was saying here. That's what He wanted the Pharisees to get and to understand. That's why He responded the way He did. You see, people have to admit they are sick before they will accept a cure. Hear me on that? Everybody hear that? People have to admit they are sick before they will accept a cure. And that's what we need to get people to realize. That's really our task, is to help people understand, as we needed to understand, those of us who, those of us who have come to Christ, we needed to understand that we were sick and that we had need of a cure beyond ourselves. That's what it really means to come to Christ. And once we've done that, then we are used by Christ to go and help others realize that. So we need to help people understand and admit that they are sick. That they are terminally and eternally sick 
before they will accept a cure. And so many times we get that wrong and we, we get the cart before the horse and we expect people to just automatically accept this cure that we're telling them they need when we haven't convinced them that they're sick and need it. What I mean by that is, is putting it another way. So often, Christians, we expect the non-Christians to act like Christians for some reason. And we're mystified and stupefied when they don't. But they don't even realize that they're sick. They don't understand why they need this cure we're talking about. I'm good. What, what do you mean? Why are you dangling this in front of me? I don't need that. So until they realize their condition and position before God, and until they realize they have no help in themselves or from anybody else, until they realize their need for Christ, they're not going to want what we say they need and what we are providing. And here's how we get them to that point. The mirror and spotlight. It's both. The mirror and spotlight that is God's Word is the absolute best thing to use for that to happen. People have to admit they are sick before they will accept a cure. And our best strategy is to use the mirror and spotlight that is God's Word to show them that. Because God's Word is a mirror. It shows us who we are. We look into God's Word. We see ourselves in a real, objective way. We see that we are poor and sick and needy. We see how sinful we really are because it exposes that in us. God's Word is a mirror. But God's Word is also a spotlight because it shines a great big spotlight on God's holiness and on who He is. So we see ourselves and we see God. And we see ourselves in light of who God is. So we don't need to try to be clever and cunning and, and subtle. Christian, let's just, let's just take people to the Word of God and let it show them who they are and who God is and how they need Him and how He provides what they need. Amen? Show them God's Word. The mirror and spotlight of God's Word. Well, back to the text. Verse 13, Jesus continues His statement to the Pharisees. He's still talking to them in answer to the question that they asked of the disciples. Why is He eating with tax collectors and sinners? And after He said that it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick, He follows up and He says this, verse 13, Go and learn... <laughs> You've got to love Jesus. Who is He talking to? Remember... The Pharisees, the experts of the law, the religious teachers of the day. And he says to them, go and learn. Hey teachers, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes something that they would have known, that they would have been familiar with and probably used in their own sermons. Go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 6. Again, they would have known that. Experts of the law, experts of what the prophets proclaimed. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he, he makes it personally, brings it back to himself, and he says this, For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in saying that, and in mentioning these two categories of people as they saw it, as the Pharisees looked at society and humanity, they, they broke everybody up into two categories. The righteous or the sinner. And you, we know what they considered themselves to be part of. The righteous category, not those nasty sinners. And really, really that does apply to everyone. Everyone falls into one of two different categories, but both categories have the same need. Okay, follow me on this. The sinner, the sinner thinks they are too bad to come to Jesus. Someone who really knows all they've done and understand, doesn't need to be told they're a sinner. You know what I'm talking about. People that you, you don't really have to convince they're a sinner. They know they're a sinner. They have to be convinced that there's no such thing as too much of a sinner to come to Christ. So the, the real sinner, they think they're too bad to come to Jesus. There's no way Jesus would want me. There's no way Jesus would accept me. There's no way Jesus would forgive me. You don't know all I've done. There's just no way that's possible. They think they're too bad to come to Jesus. Then, though, there's the self-righteous. The self-righteous. The self-dependent. And they think they're good enough to not need Jesus. And that's certainly where the Pharisees fell into. That's the category they were part of. Self-righteous, self-dependent. I'm good enough. I don't need anybody else. I'm good enough with God. I mean, of all people, we're the Pharisees. We're good with God. We don't need anybody else. We don't need a doctor. We're well. Jesus knew that. That's why He said what He did. He said, well, you obviously think you're fine. You think you're well. You don't think you have a need for a doctor. And until you realize that, you're not going to come to me. I'm focusing on those that know they need me. That know they have no hope in themselves unless I intervene. And really what he was saying, he wanted the Pharisees to get to that point where they realize no amount of self-righteousness will ever be enough righteousness for God. No amount of self-righteousness or personal morality will ever be enough to merit God's favor or salvation. That's the problem with legalism. How much is enough? How good is good enough? Well, that's why the law never worked. Because the the law, all it did was show people you never are going to be able to keep this. You're never going to be good enough to where the law is satisfied. That's why you need the lawgiver himself to come down and intervene and be your substitute. Legalism says, oh, I've got to try harder, do more, be better. And there's no end to it. Because you're never going to be good enough by yourself to get God's favor or acceptance. And that was the stumbling block for the Pharisees. They need their eyes to be opened and to realize what God's Word says that all of our righteousness, all of our righteous acts and our righteous deeds that we do before God are filthy, disgusting, putrid rags. 
both the sinner and the self-righteous need to realize their true condition. And they need to realize their need for the cure that only Jesus provides. Both categories need to repent. The sinner needs to repent of their sin. The self-righteous needs to repent of their self-righteousness because that's the idol they're clinging to and in itself is sin. See? See how it works? Self-righteousness is itself sinful and it keeps you from God just like obvious sins do. So both the self-righteous and the sinner, they need to repent and they are called to do so. Jesus is called to repent and come to Him to follow Him. It's a call to every single person because every single person falls into those two categories. You're either very aware of your sin or you are very self-righteous. And both need to repent. Both are called to do so in order to receive the cure that they so desperately need. So what category would you say you fall into? What category did you fall into? And what are you more prone to? Would you identify more with the obvious and blatant and rebellious sinner? Would you say that that was your story before you came to Christ? Or maybe that's kind of how your natural heart is prone to? Or would you say that you were definitely more of the Pharisee type, the self-righteous, good, moral person that really needed to be convinced that no matter how good you might be by human standards, compared to God's standard, you would never be good enough. Which one did you fall into? Chances are you fell into one of those. And as we go about living in this world surrounded by all the people outside of us, we need to view them through those lenses. We need to understand that's the categories they're going to fall into. And we need to reach them accordingly. We need to convince the sinner. We need to show them that there's no such thing as being too bad for Jesus. And we need to convince the self-righteous there's no such thing as being so good that you don't need Jesus. That's our call, Christian. That's what's before us. And thankfully, we don't have to do that by ourselves and our own strategies and trying to be so creative and clever. No, we have, we have two things at our disposal that we need to constantly apply. One is the Word of God. Remember, I said it's a mirror and a spotlight. Then we have the Spirit of God that guides us and empowers His Word as we point people to it. So let's make sure, let's make sure that we employ those two amazing gifts, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. All right? So let's take this, let's go with this, and as we have one-on-one encounters, let's remember this Christ encounter and all that it shows us, all that it teaches us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for what it does show us. I thank You for Your Son calling Matthew. Of all people, He called Matthew. Thank You for that. Thank You that Jesus didn't just call one certain type of people, one certain type of category or description or expectation of of the people He would use. He called all sorts of different people to Himself, and He still does. And that's why we have hope. 
That's why we are able to be privileged enough to be part of his mission, because he, he calls all kinds of different people, and he uses all kinds of different people. Thank you for, through Matthew, Jesus so intentionally reaching the people that others didn't reach or weren't willing to reach, thought were unreachable. Thank you, Father, that there's no such thing as an unreachable people group. And I pray that we would believe that. I pray that we would remember that. And and I pray that you would raise us up, give us a burden and a heart to be willing to go out and reach the people that others aren't reaching, that no one else wants because you want them. Thank you for reaching us. There's nothing about us that would make you want us naturally. And yet you reached us. You, You sent your Son to become one of us, to reach us and bring us to Yourself. Help us to never get over that and help us to be motivated to go and bring the truth, the light, and the cure that is Your Word to all those who need it. Help us to make sure we stress repentance. Because without repentance, salvation really isn't possible. And I pray all this in Jesus' name with thanks. Amen.